CHK. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong on Thursday the 21st of April. This is Peter Lewis with Money Talk on Radio 3. In today's business and finance headlines, Chinese banks kept their benchmark lending rates unchanged in April for the third consecutive month, despite expectations that they would cut them to stimulate growth in the economy. The one-year loan prime rate remained at 3.7%, while the five-year LPR, which is linked to household mortgages, was kept at 4.6%. Shanghai reported a total of 18,901 COVID cases and seven deaths yesterday. It's the first time the number of new infections has dropped below 20,000 in 13 days. There was an easing of some lockdown measures on Wednesday, with around 4 million Shanghai residents in the financial hub allowed to leave their homes after weeks of confinement. YouTube has terminated the campaign channel of John Lee, Hong Kong's sole candidate for city leader, and also Meta's Facebook and Instagram have banned payment services by the former chief secretary. Mr Lee's campaign team was told by Google, YouTube's parent company, that the channel was terminated in accordance with sanctions by the United States government. Mr Lee denounced the measures as bullying acts over his work in safeguarding national security. Germany has said it will halt imports of Russian oil by the end of this year. Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock said we will halve oil by the summer and will be at zero by the end of the year and then gas will follow and German producer prices increased at the fastest pace since records began 73 years ago in 1949. Producer prices for, for industrial products were almost 31% higher than the same period last year. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by personal wealth advisor Enzio von Fahl and, and Alicia Garcia-Herrero and the Texas with a view from South Korea, is Peter Kim from KB Securities. <laughs> It was a mixed day for shares on Wall Street overnight following a sharp rally on Tuesday. The S&P 500 slipped less than 0.1% to close at 4,459. The Dow advanced 250 points, that's 0.7% to 35,161. The Nasdaq Composite Index fell 1.2% to 13,453. The Nasdaq was dragged lower by the biggest fall in nearly 18 years for Netflix. Shares of Netflix plunged 35% to a four-year low, losing about 54 billion US dollars in market value following disappointing quarterly subscriber figures. The company reported a net loss of 200,000 subscribers in the first quarter, the first time subscriptions have declined in 10 years. The stock's down 62% this year, including last night's fall. Shares of other streaming services were also dragged lower. Paramount Global finished down 8.6% and Warner Brothers Discovery was off 6%. Walt Disney retreated 5.6%, while Spotify lost almost 11%. After the closing bell, electric car maker Tesla reported an 81% rise in revenues from a year ago and record quarterly profits. Revenues in the first quarter were $18.76 billion versus the $17.8 billion expected, and that generated a profit of $3.3 billion US dollars. 
compared to the 2.2 billion expected by analysts. Shares of Tesla are up 6% in after hours trading. The Pan-European Stock 600 index rose 0.8%. London's FTSE 100 was up 0.4%. Shares on the mainland and the yuan fell after China left its benchmark interest rate on hold. The Shanghai Composite dropped 1.4% to 3,151. In Shenzhen, the Chinex tumbled 3.7%. Hong Kong stocks suffered a rocky ride. The Hang Seng Index fell to a one-month low shortly after the open, before rebounding into lunchtime. But stocks gave up their gains in the afternoon session, with the benchmark index ending 83 points, or 0.4% lower, at a five-week low of 20,945. And the tech index ended the day half a percent lower. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil is down a third of a percent at $107.23 a barrel. Gold has climbed a third of a percent to $1,955 an ounce. And the US 10-year Treasury bond yield tumbled 11 basis points to 2.83%. The US dollar slipped lower overnight. The euro is trading at $1.08.5. The Japanese yen has rebounded almost 1% to 128 versus the dollar. The British pound is worth $1.30.5 and 10 Hong Kong dollars and 25 cents. The offshore yuan has fallen to 6.44 and a half, its weakest level in six months. And Bitcoin is up a third of a percent at $41,300. Stock markets around Asia um, are now opening up. Down in Australia, the ASX 200 is up 0.1%. The Nikkei 225 in Japan has risen half a percent. Uh, the Cosby is also up half a percent. Looks like, though, the Hang Seng is going to decline about 130 points at the open this morning. It's 8.09. We have with us, as usual, on a Thursday morning, personal wealth advisor Enzio von Farr. Morning to you, Enzio. And also with us is Alicia Garcia Herrero, who is Chief Economist for Asia Pacific. And the Texas, morning to you, Alicia. Good morning. Um, Enzio, let's start with these um, IMF downgrades. You've been talking a while now on this show about the potential from stag uh, stagflation. It seems the IMF in its World Economic Outlook is coming around to the same idea, certainly in some parts of the world, particularly um, in, in Europe. What do you make of these IMF downgrades? Because they're quite sharp, aren't they? Well, you know, it's so much an economist telling you the time by looking at somebody else's watch. I mean, if our listeners don't know that we've been in a slowdown for some months, then I'm really, really, I feel for them. They're, they're stating the obvious, and they're not really telling us the way forward. They're just saying what is and what has been, and then what all of us fools who go and stick our necks out months before suggest might happen. Um, so, I'm, I, you know, IMF stands for I am fired. And I really mm -hmm. think these bloated DMFs don't do a whole lot of good on that front, maybe on other fronts, but certainly not on that front. It is surprising, isn't it, I suppose, that the IMF, just back in October, was forecasting inflation of 3.5%. And now, just, what, five months later, it's raised it to 7.7%. Something's either wrong with its initial forecast, or it suggests that inflation is really out of control. Well, a camel is a horse designed by committee. 
And so I'm afraid that what I, what I suspect happens is that everybody has to sort of agree on some kind of a, of a consensus, and that this is exactly then what happens, um, that you get a group think going on. Mm. But the word stagflation, it comes with a lot of bad connotations, doesn't it, for those who remember the 1970s when it was surging oil prices that really caused stagflation then. Is Ukraine the new jump in oil prices that we saw back in back those days? I think so, but I mean, it, 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 it's kind of a... It, it, it's, I've, I've put this one in there. I, I think it's, a, it, it's not totally the same, obviously, but I just think that the, the supply bottlenecks, particularly on the agricultural front, but also the other oil price of today is, of course, our British friend, the weather. El Nino, La Nina is really wreaking havoc in all sorts of um, agricultural harvesting seasons. And that's also, so that's the other oil too, is Ukraine and then the weather. Alicia, we've talked about this before, I know, but stagflation out here doesn't seem that likely. It doesn't seem that China is going to fall into recession. But do you agree with the IMF that the risks are growing in other parts of the world? Uh, no, because they actually don't show any stagflation in their numbers. I mean, uh, the U.S. economy, is, uh, according to them, it will go above 3%. Uh, the EU, uh, 28 So that's not stagflation. So, so I mean, the point is that we want to have a new definition of stagflation, which is fine with me. We could uh, look at the basically the... the Secondary, that is, meaning we we would like to look at the acceleration of inflation and the deceleration of growth, and therefore we use that definition. Everybody is, uh, but, but you know, it's a very very lax concept. So, in other mm. words, I don't think we're there. And I think a very important thing to note from the IMF uh, forecast is that their inflation, which you're right, is a spike in 2022, but comes down very aggressively in 2023. To, to basically, you know, normal average. Mm. Whether they will get it right or wrong, uh, it's a different uh, story. But the IMF is telling the world that inflation is still temporary. That's their message. But there, there is a risk, isn't there, that growth, particularly in the Eurozone, uh, could turn negative. I know the IMF is still predicting growth, but it's revised it down sharply. Mm. We may say in a few months' time, particularly if Germany goes and bans uh, or the whole Eurozone goes and bans Russia oil and gas, um, it could tip the Euro- European economy into recession. Yes, they, they are, they, they're not uh, putting that option uh, as a baseline. To be very frank, I think what we are seeing now is that by the time uh, Germany bans uh, oil and gas, Germany doesn't have other options. And I, therefore, I don't think the impact is going to be so massive um, beyond the, the already announced deal. Uh, with the U.S., we have Qatar. Qatar will massively increase gas production in 2024. My point is that I think the, the energy part of the shock is certainly temporary, mm. even even with a ban and even with a protracted war, because so many other sources of energy are coming to the table, and, and it's going to take some time, but it's going to happen. What I think is important to to distinguish, though, is that, and this is in the IMS report, and it's a very good point, is that when you look at the sources of inflation for in 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 the course of uh, 2022, i.e., this few months, you see massive second round effects in the U.S. About a third of that inflation 
is coming from wage increases, you know, tight labor market, etc. And that's not the case of the EU. Mm. So my sense is that if inflation is going to become more more entrenched, that's going to be the US, in my opinion. Yeah. Okay. And Enzio, what do governments and central banks do about this? We've seen uh, the Fed, it's pretty well baked in a 50 basis point rise. James Bullard of the St. Louis Fed is now talking about maybe a 75 basis point uh, rate rise. What, what, what have central banks got to do? Well, I think too much emphasis is, is in this mild rattle again, is has been placed on central bank policy because growth isn't just, even if by economic talk ticks with the money supply, growth is not just a function of the price of money. Mm. And so it's, I think too much is being hoisted onto the central banks and we've all been sort of, you know, we have our eyeballs glued to the screens about the Fed funds rate and all this kind of stuff, probably not most of us really knowing what the Fed funds rate really does. Um, so I'm afraid that it, the, the fiscal policy is just as important, but in the developed world, for instance, in one of my alma maters, the U.S. and Germany and the U.K., the fiscal policy really has to be more on the structural side of education policy, for instance, training for tomorrow's jobs. Whilst in China, it is very much the spending on roads and bridges, which can then be taken care of by domestic labor. And that means consumption multipliers take in, take in because the domestic people, the domestic workers earn money. They spend it domestically. It's not like in Germany where the, where the labor was imported and then it was spent back in Turkey. Isn't the problem in China, though, that, you know, we're seeing all these measures from the PBOC, all these announcements uh, from the government we had late on Monday evening, these 23 measures which the PBOC published. Isn't isn't the problem, though, is that they all seem to be uh, supply side policies. What we're not seeing is enough to boost consumption. That's the real problem on the mainland, isn't it? And we saw those dreadful retail sales figures from March. Haven't the authorities got it the wrong way, wrong, wrong way round? I'm, I'm bad with wrong and wrong and right. Um, but I, I think that there may be scope for improvement. Yes. Um, on the demand side, I think if they did more fiscal spending, they would boost as you say, the demand side, because you would boost people's incomes, especially the, the 900 million floating population of the rural side, and that would boost incomes, and then you would have what we call the, the consumption effect kicking in. So mm. I think you're absolutely right there. Alicia, what do you make of what the authorities are doing on the mainland? The PBOC had an opportunity yesterday uh, to cut the loan prime rates, it passed up on that, despite the State Council, which oversees the PBOC, last month promising to use monetary policy and other tools to support the economy and the stock markets. Why is the PBOC being so timid when it comes to easing monetary policy? Well, they, uh, because they don't have so much space as we think they do. And they're trying to do targeted easing. So they're telling the banks, lend. Uh, make sure you give more mortgages, uh, lend to the SMEs, um, you know, all of that window guidance that the PBOC always does, especially in difficult times. If you cut rates at the very same time, you not only, and this is important, um, reduce to what it would become uh, by far negative, yeah, spread mm-hmm. with the U.S. Treasury yields, and that's 
problem because you have capital outflows, which China already has, but I mean more than that. But beyond that, and this we tend to forget, there's also the issue that banks need a decent net interest margin if they need to continue to target the sectors that are being hit by COVID. And this is extremely important because China doesn't have the kind of uh, welfare state we do in, you know, in the West by which, okay, you are unemployed, you know, there you go, this is your pay and it gets on your account and, you know, and so they need the banks to make sure that those SMEs get the necessary funding to continue to pay the wages needed for people to consume, etc. Mm. Therefore, I think cutting, cutting is, is, is difficult. It's better to uh, release liquidity as they're doing. So I think that's the right policy, my view. It, it seems that the PBOC is leaving the commercial banks then to do all the heavy lifting in the economy. Is that going to work? Uh, frankly, in the short run, that's the best thing they can do because they don't have a designed fiscal policy that reaches the consumer or the SME. So given that this is urgent, I think there's no other way uh, around it. But I need to warn that for big banks, this is not an issue because they have a decent uh, capitalization. I mean, uh, solvency ratios, uh, asset quality is good. But for the smaller banks, this could turn costly. And the PBOC knows it, and as you probably know, they've been discussing the setup of a large uh, financial stability fund, uh, which will be contributed by different financial institutions, possibly the most solvent, I imagine. Uh, And therefore, in a way, there's going to be a safety net because they know that uh, smaller banks might suffer enormously from this policy, but they've kind of come around it and created this uh, financial stability fund indeed. Amenzia, what do you make of these 23 measures then that the PBC has announced to try and stimulate the economy in, in, in light of all the lockdowns that are going on on the mainland? Do you think they're sufficient? Are they going to work? I think the, the key is the lockdown. I think that that's the key um, killer. And so you can do what you want. But if, you're, if, if you want to run a race, but you're cutting off one foot, then it's, it's a little bit tricky to win the race. And I'm afraid that that's going to last for some time. So I think that the the growth rebound isn't, it, it, there will be a some pickup in growth, but I mean, it's not going to be this bounce back that many people are expecting. It will be an improvement in economic time, but not something that we've seen in previous cycles because of this COVID, because of COVID policy. And, and what are the global implications of these um, lockdowns? Because they're affecting supply chains. We've got lots of container ships now jammed outside uh, the port in Shanghai. Truck drivers anyway can't get to the port very easily to load and unload goods. Is this going to have a big impact on global supply chains and the global economy? Back to stagflation, absolutely, because you can't just sort of turn this thing on and off. It was right like my dear wife some days ago when it was so rather cold saying, Enzo, please turn off the fireplace. Well, that doesn't really work if you've got a bunch of logs burning. So um, the same thing here. You can't just sort of make supply chains happen again. Mm. So I think you will find a lot of streamlining, a lot more of not onshoring of production, but nearshoring of production going on. But I'm afraid that the overall story, I stick with my, perhaps doggedly, with my view that stagflation is here is going to stay for quite some time because of the structural change and the structural mess that we're in.
Alicia, the other thing that's obviously going on in the world at the moment, the Ukraine war, what sort of impact does that have on China? And what is the risk that China could sort of inadvertently get dragged into being on the end of sanctions? Because we really don't know exactly where the US red lines are on, on this and how close China is maybe getting to either deliberately or inadvertently even crossing these red lines. Well, uh, I guess probably Chinese policymakers know better than us where the red lines are, or so I hope. But uh, to me, there's three types of uh, uh, potential risk. Uh, one is, of course, oil. And you can say, well, that's, you know, if, in, if Europe imports oil, how would you afford, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, India or China not to? Well, that's not a red line. And we know that and we've seen. But the red line could possibly be to whom you make the payment and in which currency, because mm. there we do have strict. So, so that's, I guess that's easy to avoid because China has a lot of experience. Think about uh, Iran. I don't think they miss that red line. The no. second red line uh, is um, research. Uh, so uh, R&D research or even gold. Yeah, from Russia that Russia might want to convert in hard currency. I don't think the PPC is going to cross that red line because it's going to be very obvious, you know, in terms of, you know, this is a 90 billion. You're going to see that as a as a mm. very big outflow and less reserves and net net. So I don't think they cross that r- red line either. Okay. Now, the third one, which is a little bit harder to figure, and to me the most important for Russia, because that's where it is really uh, hurting, is export, um, interestingly, export into Russia, and mainly semiconductors, uh, mm. so fusion-type technology, so, you know, semiconductors for military equipment, for example. Oh. And we know that uh, China has not uh, embarked in the, in the ban of uh, uh, semiconductor exports, but the point is they import components from countries that have banned the exports. So, you oh. know, ca- can they be caught in the crossfire of, of, of these sanctions. I think these are the riskiest, if you ask me. Okay, well, thank you very much for your thoughts. That's Alicia Garcia Herrero, Chief Economist for Asia Pacific at Natixis and Personal Wealth Advisor, Enzio von File. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. It's 8.25 on the phone now from Seoul in South Korea is Peter Kim, Managing Director and Investment Strategist at KB Securities. Morning, Peter. Good morning. Um, So we've been talking a lot about global growth uh, this morning, these IMF uh, sort of downgrades, the slowdown in China. I mean, one of the consequences of, in particular, this big surge in inflation is that we're going to see a sharp rise, aren't we, in U.S. interest rates, certainly in the next meeting and maybe at every Fed meeting now till the end of the year. What are the repercussions of of that going to be here in Asia, which is uh, some parts already suffering from a sharp economic slowdown? Uh, good question, because uh, I don't think uh, over the past 30 years uh, we've had uh, this type of, uh, well, uh, inflationary pressures, uh, certainly uh, not in my lifetime. Uh, normally, when you have the Fed uh, going for this type of a steep rate hike, uh, it augurs a very uh, difficult uh, environment for emerging markets, uh, including Asia. But it's different this time because China is running on different engines, not just uh, based on central bank, but also uh, on trade as well as politically. 
uh, rest of Asia, uh, it's a mixed bag. Uh, some stronger part of Asia, like South Korea, uh, is in pretty good step where it was able to make uh, uh, four preemptive hikes. Uh, there are some uh, economies, however, are still quite vulnerable to uh, exogenous shocks that could come from higher rate environments. So uh, it's going to be uh, unlike the other uh, cycles uh, where EM uh, nations move together. It's going to be a mixed bag. Mm. And, and what about the markets? I mean, we've never before, um, certainly as far as I can remember anyway, seen the Fed withdraw stimulus and raise rates at such a rapid pace as this without causing mayhem in the financial markets. Can they get away with it this time? So I think a previous uh, segment, you mentioned about the supply side. Um, and I think to me, the greatest concern is, is that exactly how effective will higher rates be uh, in tackling this supply side side of the inflation. So the anatomy of this current inflation is unlike the, the previous, where most a lot of it was aggregate demand driven. Uh, this time, I would say at least half of this inflation pressure is coming from supply side. Uh, so if you consider um, how effective these interest rate hikes will be, once again, um, the, uh, at cost of a possibly curbing growth before it finds its footing, that's going to be the greatest risk to uh, financial markets, obviously equities. Mm. But, but then if the, if the Fed and other central banks can't really deal uh, with this type of supply-side shock, isn't the only other alternative for them is they've got to curb demand, bring demand back down until it meets this lower level of supply, which could well mean throwing some major economies into recession. Yeah, right. So uh, the demand side of it uh, once is also complicated. How much of this demand is created by fiscal spending uh, or a lower rates? Uh, second, how much of it is is uh, coming from of what originally was thought to be transitory part of the inflation? Uh, so I think uh, the you know we're starting to hear about the concerns uh, from the bond market uh, about possibility of stagflation uh, that is uh, uh, that points to a uh, Fed rates actually being cut uh, towards the end of next year, and I think those are the. Uh, the dilemma that uh, equity investors have to grapple with. Um, my uh, biggest uh, focus for the next 12 months will be is that uh, based on individual nations, how they respond, uh, whether they're in unison with the Fed or uh, going on their own path, mm. both on the monetary front and fiscal front. So it's a, it's a most complex uh, uh, rate cycle that I've ever experienced in my Lifetime. And, and the markets are taking steps almost by themselves to, to, to correct what they see as some erroneous central bank policies. You've mentioned the bond markets. We've got the 10-year Treasury yield close to 3%, but also the strains in the currency markets. We've got the dollar at a near two-year high. The Japanese yen has fallen to a 20-year low. The Chinese yuan is now weakening um, as well. We are seeing signs of stresses already, maybe not in stocks, but in other parts of the market, aren't we? Everywhere. I mean, you know, uh, the correlations that we used to rely on and take for granted, like uh, you mentioned the yen being a safe currency, uh, during times of uh, stress like this, you expect the yen to be strengthening, not weakened. Uh, and that's just one of uh, so many correlations that are breaking down. And I uh, point to 
the many different uh, uh, factors that are driving uh, what used to be a fairly coordinated policy response uh, to one that is now diverging away. I mean, uh, clearly China uh, uh, is one of them. Uh, so um, I would have to say uh, remain cautious on equity markets for the next few months, at least until the FOMC uh, gets uh, at least three or four hikes out of the way. I oh, think okay. we really need to see how the, the, the financial market responds uh, uh, to a higher rate environment. I think uh, it's very, almost impossible to make a forecast uh, on any one of these factors given the, uh, the uh, decline in correlations. Okay, well, Peter, thank you very much. That's Peter Kim, Managing Director and Investment Strategist at KB Securities in South Korea. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. In South Korea right now, the Cosby is up a quarter of a percent. In Australia, the SX200 is also up around 0.2%. Uh, the Nikkei 225 in Japan has jumped uh, close to 0.9% shortly after the open. But it does look like uh, a fall for the Hang Seng again at the open of about one. 130 points this morning. Please do join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Stay tuned for COVID updates with Jim Gould and James Ockerden. That's coming up right after the news. The weather forecast, mainly cloudy, one or two showers, sunny periods during the day and a maximum temperature of around 27 degrees. Sunny periods tomorrow and it's going to be hot during the day in the following few days. Temperature right now is 23 degrees, 82% relative humidity. On 8.32, here's Andrew Swarovski with the Half Hour News. Thank you, Peter. A boutique, boutique fitness operator says she's less concerned about whether positive COVID cases will be found in her gym and more concerned about the viability of operating a small business in Hong Kong. Premises shuttered during the fifth wave, such as gyms, cinemas and beauty parlors, reopened today while still observing social distancing rules. Trisha Yap, co-founder of the Hong Kong Alliance of Boutique Fitness Operators, said many people had shut their businesses or relocated elsewhere in Asia as they feel Hong Kong is no longer a viable city to do business in. She told RTHK that support from the government had been the bare minimum. We're less concerned about positive cases because we've just seen a big wave come and go, but we're just more concerned about the decreasing viability of being a small business operator in Hong Kong. We're being shut down for four to five months every year, and we have been in, this is the third year running. It has completely affected not just our livelihoods, the livelihoods of our staff, as well as a ton of freelance trainers and coaches here in this industry. A company providing COVID tests has apologized for failing to send results to almost 500 people, 25 of whom had the virus. Here's Jimmy Choi. Pragnetics says the incident involved people who returned deep-throw saliva samples to outpatient clinics between February the 21st and March the 1st. An initial investigation showed that staff made mistakes when uploading test results at a time when they were handling an increasing backlog of samples amid the Omicron outbreak. Pragnetics says 482 people did not receive test messages informing them of the test results. It said it had reported positive cases to the Department of Health early last month and told the hospital authority last week about the incident. Pragnetics said it has followed up on the people affected and will conduct a thorough investigation. And to prevent similar incidents in future, the company said it has improved its workflow in handling samples. 
The founder of an environmental group has welcomed a proposal by the government to increase the levy on plastic bags from 50 cents to a dollar. Officials also want to remove an exemption to the charge for frozen goods and allow only one bag for takeaway meals. They hope to put the amendments to LegCo as soon as June. Edwin Lau of the Green Earth says the plan to increase